Alrighty, so we are continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, and we are in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and we are looking at the church in Smyrna. If you received a bulletin on your way in, I'll be following a simple outline that's on your right side and on the left side. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can um, look at the scripture right there. And so in prepping for this morning... The song that kept coming to mind was Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie. But I quoted Tina Turner last week, so going with another song felt a bit like overkill. So I decided, why don't we talk about a movie? Now, have you seen Superman 3? Man, you got to see Superman 3. But anyway, there's a scene at the end of Superman 3 where Superman is at a coal mine with Richard Pryor's character, and he picks up a piece of coal, and he squeezes it, and he squeezes it until finally he opens up his hand, and and those of you have seen it, what was in his hand? A diamond. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I'm pretty sure that's not how diamonds are formed, at least not entirely. Actually, I did a little bit of research. When carbon is exposed to extreme heat, and pressure for long periods of time, the end result is a diamond. Extreme heat and pressure. This means, this is the means by which beauty is achieved. Extreme heat and pressure. And this is exactly what we've seen taking place within the church at Smyrna. And it is their faithfulness under these extreme conditions that produces what Jesus refers to as the crown of life. This is the pattern that we've been seeing for quite some time, that suffering, particularly that which comes from faithfulness, is the means by which God is bringing about resurrection and restoration and ultimately life. This is the pattern of the biblical text. This is what it looks like. This is what redemption looks like. It requires suffering in order to be accomplished. We saw this in the Old Testament when we looked at the book of Ruth. We also see this in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, that what is required for the forgiveness of sins but the shedding of blood, death is required for redemption. Suffering is required for redemption. So let's take a look at our text. We are at our first point called a synagogue of Satan. That's a fun way to start off a sermon, right? Synagogue of Satan. But before we jump into our text, let's talk about Smyrna for a brief second. Smyrna was referred to as the crown of Asia, known for its beauty, a city that rivaled Ephesus as the first city of Asia. In fact, their coins were stamped with the words, first city of Asia in size and beauty. They were a proud people. Smyrna was also a city that had seen its fair share of difficulty. In 580 BC, the city was destroyed, but it was rebuilt in 290 BC. The people of the city were proud of this rags to riches resurrection story. And I bring these few facts up because they are the things that the writer, John, was aware of, and they provide a backdrop for what we're about to look at. 
In addition, Smyrna was one of the few churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, that received no condemnation in these letters. They were a church that was actually doing the work of the ministry. They were a church that was faithful. They were a church that was not dabbling in idolatry, but rather they were marching forward in faith in order to honor their God, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They weren't being thrown off course by the temptations that were surrounding them, and there were many temptations surrounding them. So let's look, verses 8 and 9. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jewish and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The first and the last one, the one who died and came back to life. Notice what he refers to himself as, as Jesus is speaking. The first, as he's speaking to the city of Smyrna, who identified themselves as the first. Jesus steps in and says, no, I'm the first and the last. In fact, I bracket everything that is going to transpire. So to get into a little bit of what theologians call Christology, Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last. He is the eternal God. He is the eternal God. And in using that phrase, first and last, what Jesus is doing, he's alluding back to the prophet Isaiah. Let me read you a few verses. In Isaiah 41.4, it says this. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first, and with the last, I am he. In Isaiah 44, 6, it says, Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of armies, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. In Isaiah 48, 12, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. So what's the point? Why do I read all those verses? Well, Jesus, in alluding to Isaiah, he makes the point that he is the same God who acted on behalf of Israel in the Old Testament. He is the eternal God, begotten of the Father. I want to read from you in John chapter 1, the same guy who wrote this book. It says this, and I'm sure many of you have heard this before. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was where? With God. And the word, what? Was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot cast it out. In verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the point that I'm trying to make is that when we're looking at this text, when we're looking at this person, Jesus, who we're looking at is Almighty God Himself. Almighty God Himself is the one who is speaking right now. He is God. And he is the God who acted both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament and is still acting today through the power of his Holy Spirit in the church as we bear witness to him in the world. He also refers to himself as the one who died and came back to life. 
We're talking about the resurrected one. We're talking about the resurrected one, but we need to be careful that we don't run past his death and get to the resurrection because we are also talking about the suffering one, the one who died and came back to life. We need to be so careful as followers of Jesus not to run past suffering in order to get to the resurrection, not to run past death in order to get past the resurrection, but rather we need to allow ourselves and sometimes maybe even force ourselves to sit in the fact that suffering is the reality of this world and it is the means by which we are being perfected and drawn nearer to Christ because he is the suffering servant. The point is, is that the first and the last one who is described by the prophet Isaiah as the Lord of armies, the one who commands legions of angels is also the one who died. He's the one who died. And yes, he rose again, but it is his suffering that we participate in now as we await our own resurrection on the last day. It is his suffering that we participate in now as we await our own resurrections at the last day. And as I said, he described himself to Smyrna as the first, he describes himself to Smyrna, which was the first city in Asia, as the first and the last. And he also described himself to Smyrna, a city that experienced his own, its own resurrection, as the one who died and came back to life. This is not a coincidence. Jesus uses familiar language to describe himself, and in so doing, he places himself far above the glory of Smyrna, which would have served as a comfort for the believers being persecuted in this city. And man, we can glean from that, right? We can learn something from that because the same God, the same Jesus who's speaking to the church in Smyrna speaks to us today. We're in an election year, which for many of us has been quite unnerving as we watch whatever news outlet you watch. But one thing we need to remember, and we're not going to get into whom we should vote for and who we should not vote for because that is a matter of conscience, but what we can get into is the fact that regardless of whomever it is that sits in that Oval Office, guess what? Jesus is the first and the last. And we serve a king higher than any other king under the sun. And we serve a kingdom that is higher than any other kingdom under the sun. That is something we need to wrestle with. We need to grapple with. We need to fight the temptation of idolatry when it comes to our politics, when it comes to even our own nation. Yes, we can love the country we live in, but we cannot worship it. And we cannot see any political party as being the savior who's going to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Because guess what? America ain't anywhere in this Bible. It's not here. Because it's not the point. Jesus is calling us to something far greater. He is the first and the last one. He is the beginning and the end. And so the text goes on in verse 9. I know your tribulations, your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
He is the one who knows their trials and their poverty. And of course he knows. Why? Because he's the one who died and came back to life. Again, it's not, it's not crazy that these two things are right next to each other in the text, that Jesus is saying, I'm the one who died and came back to life. And you know what? Because of that, I know your tribulation. I'm not unfamiliar with pain. I'm not unfamiliar with suffering. In fact, I am so familiar with it because I've tasted it on your behalf. And I'm still with you. Remember, where is Jesus? He is walking around amidst the lampstands. He is right here in our midst. He is well acquainted with us and with our trials. So what is happening in the city of Smyrna? The church was experiencing tribulation or better pressure. They were experiencing pressure. One commentator says it like this. Tribulation is the pressure felt at the clashing of values, which is precisely what Christians experience when we step into the mission of God. So what do I mean by tribulation? What do I mean by suffering? Because I think often we just throw that word out there and we say, I'm suffering. And while we might be suffering, while we might be suffering because possibly a family member has passed, or possibly, you know, we may have been struck with some sort of illness. These are all, the, this is all suffering, but this is not exactly the suffering that Jesus is getting at here. The sort of suffering, particularly that we see throughout the scriptures, is the suffering that comes as a result of missional faithfulness. It's a little different. It doesn't mean that the suffering from illnesses isn't real or the suffering from losing a family member or whatever the case may be is not real suffering, but rather what he's getting at is the sort of suffering that he's talking about is that missional suffering that comes to us when we step out in faith in the name of Christ on behalf of others. It's that sort of suffering. Suffering produced by faithfulness. I think it's interesting that this term tribulation shows up in other places, but there's one place that it shows up that, that we might not be too fond of. It says this in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother, and a partner, a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are where? Look down at your Bibles in verse 9. Where are they located? The tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. They are located in Jesus. In Jesus. So with what is John partnering in and where are these things found? They are found in Jesus, which means that those of us who bend our knee to King Jesus are also partnering in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. And so the point is, is that if we call ourselves a Christian, then we are in fact in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be under tribulation, which is directly tied to the kingdom of God. Meaning that when we put our faith in Christ, what we are brought into union with Christ 
And we gain all the benefits of being in union with Jesus. And those benefits are that we've been justified. We've been sanctified. We've been adopted into a new family. We, we will be glorified at the last day. In fact, it says in Ephesians that we are already at this present time seated in the heavenly places. But it also means something else as we await our final resurrection. It also means that we participate in the sufferings of Christ. The Christian faith is a suffering faith. Remember, we talk about this, that we are forgiven by the cross, but we are formed by the cross. We are a cross-shaped people. We are a cross-shaped people, which means we are called to pick up our crosses and to step into the mess that surrounds this world, both with one another and in the world out there. We are to step into the pain of others. And that's the sort of suffering that we're talking about. It's the sort of suffering that Jesus experienced when, when he went and spoke to the woman at the well. And, and there might have been eyes on him saying, what in the world are you doing talking to that single woman in the middle of the afternoon by yourself? And all of a sudden, that woman's mess starts to get on him. In fact, we see it in the life of Jesus where he was told that and he was called a drunkard and a glutton because whom did he hang with? Drunkards and gluttons. And so we can't be concerned about how people view us as we're stepping into the brokenness of this world because we're going to be viewed a certain way when we step into the brokenness of individuals. But that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to pick up our crosses and follow Jesus. And so what is he saying to the church in Smyrna? He's saying, I'm with you. I'm the first and the last. I died and came to life. I know what you're going through. I know your poverty. In fact, your poverty is something I want to talk about for a bit because these people, the faithful ones in Smyrna, they were so faithful that it was not only affecting their lives, it was affecting their pocketbooks as well. And see, this is what it means to follow Jesus. It affects every single aspect of our being. Every single thing we do should be affected by our relationship with Jesus, both as a church and individually in our families. This is what it means. And I know I talk about this often, that we are formed by the cross, but it's on every page of the scripture, so it's hard to get away from. We are a suffering people because we identify with the suffering servant. That's who we are. So what are some sorts of missional tribulations or missional sufferings that might be experienced for the single moms that's doing everything for the sake of your children and remaining faithful both to Christ and to them regardless of what it might cost you? And it's for those on the front lines fighting for the unborn, being told that you don't care for women's rights. It's, it is staying the course regardless of the pressure you might experience and the temptation to throw in the towel. For those standing against racial inequality, it's fighting against the temptation to quit when you're called a Marxist and your belief in the gospel is questioned. And for those walking with others who are experiencing pain and loss, it's continuing that path with the broken, weeping with them, allowing yourself to be spent because you might be the only Jesus they see right now. This is an active faith that we have been called to, Redeemer Fellowship. It's an active faith. It's something we need to step into 
in faith, trusting that God walks with us as we go. Guys, he promises that. He promises to be with us. Remember, where is Jesus in the midst of the lampstands? He's right there in the thick of it. He's right there in the thick of it. Missional suffering is the suffering we experience when we step into the pain of others and in so doing, we get their mess all over us. And it's the sort of suffering or tribulation that the scriptures call in 2 Corinthians 4.17, light and momentary. It's the sort of suffering that Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This sort of suffering being experienced by the Christians in Smyrna was coming from the hands of the Jewish population who were falsely accusing them. Their faithfulness affected their pocketbooks, their reputation, and it most likely cost some of them their lives. I think it's interesting that historically one of the great martyrs of the church, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was killed not too long after this letter was written and very well could have been a recipient of this letter. So I imagine he was reading this particular chapter in the book of Revelation knowing full well that he was going to be put on trial, knowing full well that he was going to be burned at the stake. And what did he decide? I am going to be faithful unto death because that is what marks this church in Smyrna. And what does he do? Polycarp marches off and he is killed. You can read about that in the martyrdom of Polycarp. It's free online. It's an old, um, it's a very old book that was written in the early uh, centuries of the church. But I would encourage you to give that a read. And so the text goes on, verses 10 and following. It says this. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So Jesus encourages the church. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And it's interesting, the suffering they are going to experience is at the hand of whom? The devil. It says the devil is going to throw them into prison. But at the same time, it is dictated by Christ. He determines how long the suffering will take place for. It says he will throw you into prison that you may be tested for how long? For 10 days. This idea of 10 days, it's, it's supposed to kind of articulate a, a complete suffering a complete tribulation, and it's going to be for a relatively short time. There might be some allusions to the book of Daniel here, which we don't have to get into right now, but it's interesting that he was tested for 10 days when he was eating the food that was not prepared for by the king, but he was eating the, the food that was okay for him to eat, and, and he was tested for 10 days. Again, what is really interesting is that it's the devil throwing them into prison. Now, I don't want us to get this confused, right? The devil wasn't walking around like pitchfork in hand throwing people into prison. That's not what is happening in the reality of things. Well, let me correct that. That's not what is apparently happening. But what does this teach us? It teaches us that while physical beings on this earth are the ones who are causing all of the oppression... They are the ones who are causing all of the pain. It is a battle that is taking place in the heavenly places. 
We talked about this in the book of Ephesians, that we're dealing with spiritual warfare here. And so what does this do when we, when we catch a glimpse that it's the devil throwing us into prison or the devil is the one behind it? It actually gives us a much bigger scope as to what we're dealing with. We're dealing with something that's cosmic. And we need to wrap our minds around that because what I do believe is that if we understand the cosmic nature of this thing we call Christianity, it will give us more confidence in what we're about to do and what we're about to participate in as we walk in faith, knowing full well that there's a battle raging beyond anything that we can see with our own eyes. But Jesus, remember, he's the first and the last, and he's the one dictating the time limit on this persecution. And so too with us. Whatever we're going through right now, Jesus dictates how long it will occur for. Why? Because he's the sovereign king. He knew way back when that we were going to be in the midst of this six to seven, however long month pandemic that we've been dealing with. And he knows when it's going to end. I wish he would give us an inkling as to when it's going to end. But he knows. And in fact, not only does he know, he's the one who puts the parameters on it. He's the one. And so we need to draw confidence from that. That Jesus, the Messiah, the King of all creation, he decides when we will go through whatever we will go through. And he will decide when it ends. And he will decide when this life ends and that we will see him face to face in glory. Jesus is king. Redeemer Fellowship, wrap your minds around that. He's king. He's in charge. He sets the limits. The devil does not. The devil is not sovereign. Sin is not sovereign. We are not sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. He is, as the Old Testament describes, the Lord of armies. Whenever you see Lord of hosts as you're reading your Old Testament, I want you to replace it with armies because that is what he's talking about. And it gives us a much bigger view of what we're dealing with. Jesus is the one who commands all armies. He is the one who sits on the throne ruling over all of creation. That must comfort us. And that brought comfort to the people in Smyrna who are experiencing persecution. Remember, the book of Revelation is a book of comfort and hope. It's a book of comfort and hope. So what is the point? This life is filled with tests. And we are to look at these tests as opportunities for faithfulness. And this faithfulness might and probably will lead us into tribulation, but God will honor our faithfulness in the same way he did Stephen in Acts chapter 7. It's a test. And I know we don't like that, that idea of like, well, God is testing us. Well, yeah, it says it right here that he is. And what I would encourage you to do, the Bible Project just put a video out literally this week on testing which was super helpful because I was studying this. I was like, oh, sweet, I can just watch a movie. That's great. But the point is, I, would, I want to encourage you because testing, as he articulates it, is an opportunity for faithfulness. And we see it throughout the scriptures. Adam and Eve were tested. Abraham and Sarah were tested. Noah was tested. We see it throughout the scriptures. In the book of Ruth, Ruth was tested on the fields of Moab. She had a choice, right? She could have went back to her people and been totally happy, or she could have followed Naomi and her God, and she passed that test, and it was an opportunity for faithfulness. 
And so the text continues, and we're going to wrap up soon here. It says this, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Be faithful unto death. I'm reminded of Polycarp as I read those words, a man who was faithful unto death. Smyrna was known for their athletic events, very similar to the Olympic Games, that the winners would receive a crown. So again, Jesus is using something familiar to articulate a spiritual reality. Remember, Jesus was the one who died and came back to life. And so now he's calling us to do the same, to be faithful unto death. He's saying, Smyrna, you're doing great. You really are. You need to keep going. You need to be faithful unto death. And even this sentence, as you read it, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is is a conditional statement. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you the crown of life because you prayed a prayer at some point. He doesn't say that. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There's a condition to the crown of life. It is our faithfulness. Granted, it is spirit-wrought faithfulness, but it is faithfulness nonetheless. Salvation by faithfulness means that we walk in faith through the power of the Spirit. God fills us with his Spirit. By grace through faith you have been saved. And then he calls us to walk. And we walk by the Spirit. We can't just hang it up the moment we confess Jesus as Lord. That's not how it works, Redeemer Fellowship. That's not how it works individually, and that's not how it works as a church. We are called to fight, and we are called to run the race, and we are called to finish the race. That's what faithfulness means. That's what faithfulness means. And so the text says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does the Spirit want the church to hear? That those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. And that faithfulness means that we will conquer. But what does this conquering look like? I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 20, which is a controversial chapter, but a wonderful chapter nonetheless. It says this, verses 4 through 6, in chapter 20, if you want to go there with me. Then I saw thrones... And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So what do we see here? There's a group of people who John sees who were, one, beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. They did not worship the beast or its image, and they did not receive its mark on their foreheads or their hands. This group is comprised of the faithful ones, 
Those ones who were faithful unto death, most likely members of the church at Smyrna, and those who fought all the way to the finishing line without turning their backs on Christ. These are the ones over such the second death has no power, and they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign for him with him for a thousand years. God does not spare his people tribulation, Redeemer Fellowship, but rather he takes us through it. He walks with us, and when we come out the other side, we are crowned with life and raised up with him to spend eternity in perfect fellowship with Jesus. We get away from the second death. We conquer by dying. We conquer by dying. That's the pattern of the scripture. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Oh, but Redeemer Fellowship, when we die, what does the scripture tell us? That in the absence of the body, what? Face to face, in the presence of the Lord, we will be with Jesus Do you understand what that means? That the king of kings will look at us face to face, unveiled faces, the scripture tells us. No longer are we going to be kind of kind of confused that, well, what's it going to be like? What it, you know, and, and even those of you who, who struggle with doubt sometimes, all that's going to be washed away when we step into eternity. And one day, Upon Jesus' return, he is going to establish this earth as the new heavens and the new earth, and he is going to reign over it, and we are going to reign with him for all of eternity. This is the Christian faith. This is what it means to follow Jesus. There are wonderful benefits that we receive from being in union with Christ, but first, it requires that we suffer, and we suffer on behalf of those who are being pushed aside in this world, and we suffer in the name of Jesus by pointing them to the resurrected king. We don't just hand out food for the needy. We hand out food for the needy and we tell them about Jesus. We don't just care for the unborn. We care for the unborn and we tell them about Jesus. They need to know that Jesus is king and he's seated at the right hand of the father ruling over all of creation. That's our God. That's our God. And we get to do this with him. We get to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving our neighbors. And we do that in the name of the resurrected king. That's what we've been called to, Redeemer Fellowship. That is our calling. The church in Smyrna, they received nothing but commendation. And the question we need to ask ourselves is whether or not we fit into the category of the faithful. Because while this church received no condemnation, there are churches that do. And we can't just assume that we're on the in crowd. The Bible tells us that we need to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. And I'm not sitting here telling you that you need to beat yourselves up this morning. But we need to understand what the scripture is calling us to. The scriptures teach us that we need to put our faith in Christ, while at the same time it teaches us that we need to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, walk in faithfulness. This means we are to be holy and upright, rejecting moral compromise. It also means we are to be men and women who seek justice, which is the flourishing of those the world deems unworthy. 
It means that we are to care for the poor and the needy, both among us and looking in. And we are to do these things in the name of the resurrected king that they might come to know Christ. Again, we exist so that the world could catch a glimpse of what God is like. That the world would catch a glimpse of what God is like. And we must not assume that we are Smyrna. And God forbid we become a synagogue of Satan, Redeemer Fellowship. We must fight to remain faithful. It is, it is only then that we will receive the crown of life and be spared the second death. And so maybe you're asking as we close, is there a way to have Jesus without the pressure and the trials Bible commentator Daryl Johnson, he says this, there is a way out of the pressure. Just don't get serious about loving Jesus. Just go with the flow of the culture. Just settle for the comfortable, run-of-the-mill, watered-down kind of discipleship, Christianity light. Just settle for status quo, blessing kind of discipleship. And there will be no pressure, and there will also be no passion. And I will add, there will also be no life. And so as we come to the table to receive communion this morning, we come knowing that this is a table that is marked out for those who are followers of Jesus. And what do we say every week? That when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because the scriptures want us to wrestle with the fact that suffering is what marks a follower of Jesus. And so let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the example of this church in Smyrna. Lord, that they were faithful unto death. I pray that we too would be faithful unto death corporately and individually as followers of Jesus, that we would fight tooth and nail to love you with all of our hearts and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Show us, Lord, show us the needs in this community. Show us where we can get our hands dirty, where we can get our entire beings dirty, Father. Help us, Lord. Help us figure this out. Give wisdom to, to us as elders as we, as we lead this church, as we shepherd this church and care for your people, Lord God. Give us wisdom as we try to figure out what it means to step into the mission of God here in Tom's River, both in this building, in this congregation, and outside of our walls, Lord God. We love you with all of our hearts, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.